On this episode of the Scott Radley Show podcast, Sue Prestige, broadcast legend who should be in a Hall of Fame. We'll talk about that over the course of the podcast. But we talk about all kinds of stuff that was going on in the world today. Free education. Should education be free? Post-secondary we're talking about. Canada's refugee system. Is having a good social media account all you need to get into Canada? Our food guide, it's changing. Will it make people eat healthier? And women's sports, why are more people not watching it? All this coming up over the next few minutes here on the podcast. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio in studio with Sue Prestige. Should be broadcast Hall of Famer, (laughs) though no one has come up with that title for her yet. We're going to work on that one. We're going to work on that. All right. There is, I would argue that one of the two, maybe three, but probably the number one story this week for the last week and a half, probably two weeks has been this story about, um, trying to pronounce her name correctly now, the Saudi, the young Saudi girl who came over, who was tweeting and was able to get the immigration refugee status. Thank you. Yep. And we're not going to go into whether or not Christian Freeland and her appearance at the airport was appropriate or not. Everyone can have their opinion on that. But the bigger story, Sue, that I'm thinking about this, which is being backed up apparently now by what is happening overseas, is what this indicates about how our refugee policy works, which is if you are clever enough, social media savvy enough, um, able to get the attention of someone, it seems as though... You can jump the queue um, ahead of all the other people who are waiting, who probably are equally as in distress as you were. There's a lot of people who are trying to get into countries, including Canada, who are in distress, they would say. Does this send a good message or does this send a a bit of a troubling message that as long as you're smart enough to get on social media and make your case for yourself that people are going to latch on to, you're going to get special treatment? Well, you just mentioned that there's been a couple of uh, young women on social media since this happened. Yes. Since she came to Canada claiming basically the same thing as she was worried about. But what I think what we have to understand here, this wasn't just the Canadian government leaping into the fray. It was the United Nations um, committee who made the judgment she was an emergency case because apparently there's like three levels that the United Nations looks at. There's the ordinary one where I hate to say, I'm not, I don't mean to say ordinary refugee. No, I know. But I, the normal refugee status where it may take you months or even you have to years wait in line. to get in. And then the next one is um, sort of a, a, a secondary one, urgent priority. And they say that they'd like to get somebody into any country within six weeks. And then there's the emergency one, which the UN felt that she was in that category and that she should you know, be accepted by some country within seven days. So that is what she fell under. So it wasn't Canada just finding this woman. Also, the uh, social media messages that we're seeing now are coming directly out of Saudi Arabia. She had already left Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. She was in another country when all of this happened. So that does make Which it some different. people, but Sue, some people have actually said that makes their cases worse because she was now away from her family and while she was saying she was fearful for her safety in her life, she had some distance between them while these people are in imminent danger, the case is. Because what we're seeing now is, to your point, just so people who don't know this full story, after she had been accepted into Canada, there have now been a stream of other 
Saudi teen, mostly teenage girls, but younger women who have been on social media saying, I need out. My family is going to sell me into marriage. I'm under the rule of the patriarchy. I mean, all kinds of things I'm being beaten. I mean, and the question now becomes if we let her in because of her situation, which as you say, the United Nations said she was an urgent case, but if, are these not all similar type stories? What then do you do? Do we say any one of you who can actually get here, we're going to take you in right to the front of the line. I think a couple things have to be pointed out. She was listed in an emergency situation because the UN felt that her life was in jeopardy. And that that's what qualifies you under the emergency category. Her brother had already been sent to Thailand, I believe. That's where she was holed up in the hotel. And uh, so I, I think that was another mitigating factor, as well as the fact that I didn't know this uh, until quite recently, that Canada is allowed, I think it's self-imposed, 100 emergency, um, you know, uh, emergency cases yep. uh, within an, an annual year. So, you know, that's another thing to consider, that this is, doesn't happen all the time. And the whole idea that her life was in imminent danger, I think that's what separates it from urgent versus emergency. And... The UN, I mean, I have a lot of faith in them, in terms of knowing that what she was saying about the fact that she had rejected her religion, which would have put her in an even more difficult spot, um, was culturally um, a situation where the government and her parents would have, you know, been embarrassed by what was going on. But the fact that she had rejected her religion, uh, I think, put the icing on the cake in terms of her... Uh, possibly being in mortal danger. We're talking about this case of the Saudi teenager and what this means for our refugee system uh, from a variety of positions. One, because there is a perception, I think, that many have that says now, if you can figure out how to work the social media system well enough, you can jump the queue. That is one criticism. But another one while there are a lot of other women now apparently trying to do the same thing, sending the same social media messages from Saudi Arabia saying, yeah, I'm in trouble too, just like her. You were talking about the backlash this is, in, this is causing. Well, there could be two things that could happen in terms of a backlash. One could be, and I think this is being hopeful, but <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen, um, that there could be a discussion about loosening this whole guardianship issue in Saudi Arabia within the country, that will take years. That's not going to happen overnight. That would be something that the Saudis would have to do. That's That's not a Canadian thing. That is right. Right. And also the backlash with, uh, you know, very, you know, fairly wealthy families within Saudi Arabia are going to keep a very close eye on the young women who are members of their family, knowing, you know, what has happened now here in Canada thought it was really interesting when I was looking into this whole issue that that uh, some have suggested that those in the far right, because she has denounced Islam, are very happy with the fact that she's in Canada. On the other hand, we also have her getting death threats now. Who those death threats are from, they haven't, you know, I suppose you go online and look and see, but... You know, the backlash is coming from both sides. Let me ask you an interesting one that crossed my mind this week. It was six months, seven months, eight months ago that we had this debate in the House of Commons about, maybe it was longer than that, Bill M-103, which is not a law, 
which was a private member's bill that would condemn Islamophobia and criticism of Islam and other things like that. Would she not, again, it's not a law, but when she comes here and says, I had to escape because the people that were there, my family who were following that religion were doing this to me, would that not fall against that bill? You end up with this difficult circumstance where you want to welcome someone here, but the reason they're saying I had to come is for something that you are saying you're not really supposed to speak against. I think that's really difficult because it's also, uh, you know, a situation where pointedly she said it was her family that she was worried about. But under that system. But under that system. And I understand that. But I'm just not sure that it rings true that what she would say could be considered in any way what that bill was trying to do. I think that that was meant for those uh, who are not Islam. And, 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 you know, you're right, although she says she's not now, and meant this, to me, the, the reason I bring this up, it reiterates, something we've talked about on the show many times, it reiterates the difficulty when you try to put limits on speech and try to say what's good free speech, what isn't good free speech. If we don't, if we say you have free speech in this country, then we don't have a problem. But just, it was a thought that came to mind that that, that bill would seem to conflict with some of the stuff that she has insinuated since she came here. And also, we have to divide it between the religious and the cultural, yes. so, which is another consideration. Although in Saudi Arabia, they would argue that the two are one. Are one. That culture is religion, and therefore, if it's a cultural thing, it's based on a religious background, and therefore, how do you separate the two? It's a, it's a it's very complicated. complicated thing. It's exceedingly complicated, which makes that bill, in my mind, flawed nonetheless. So what do you do now? If you are the Canadian government... And you now have all these other Saudi teenage girls saying, I am in the same situation. Maybe not exactly. I'm not in Kuwait. I haven't gone on a vacation. I'm not away from my family. But my troubles, my life situation is the same. Canada, do we have the option now, having done this, do we have the option to say no to them? Or everyone who's able to get here, are we obligated to take them then? I don't think that. I think every case, and the UN has pointed this out, is judged on its own merits. So it's not a blanket statement to say, if you're a young woman from Saudi Arabia and you manage to leave the country, Canada cannot go in and find these young women who are claiming... No, we can't helicopter them out. Exactly. Uh, every case has to be based on its own merits. Maybe there were other things that we still don't know But about if you had a person, if you had another young woman get to Canada and say, I'm in the same situation and Canada says, no, you have to go back to Saudi Arabia, we would be taken over the coals for sending someone back because we would hear endlessly we were sending them to their death. Well, I I don't think it would fall under the emergency, which is what she came in under, because as I say, there's only 100 of those available. And I don't know how many we've used up, to be quite frank. Nobody Within does. a year. She may be the first, was it this year, right? It was in mm-hmm. January. It was just mm-hmm. a little while ago. So she may be the first one this year to... Uh, to come in under that, but um, it's it's going to be very tricky from here on in because remember, Australia said they were willing to take her. Yes, but she would have to. She would be a refugee right, claimant, right. and Canada said, "No, you'll be a straight refugee. We'll take you immediately." So that that was a big difference. We have a few seconds left. Do you have any? Th- do you believe at all that she? Do you believe completely that she fell into the category that allowed her to come, or do you believe at all that she was used for political purposes as well? Because that's that's the you know that's the criticism that's the number one criticism out there. That I know this is, you didn't want to discuss it, but I did no, have no. An, I did have an issue yeah, with Christia Freeland leaving no, no, her please, at the yeah. airport, 
And she wasn't, the, she's not the immigration resettlement minister. She's foreign affairs. So where, you know, that, that political um, situation or that photo op really bothered me. It was yucky. It was, you know, with the arm around her. It was opportunistic and it was yucky. And I wasn't going to get into it just so we didn't get all tied up in that complete thing uh, at the, at the cost of everything else. But no, I, I found it to be ridiculous and I found it to look, it made the story, which probably was a necessary and good story. It made it look political rather than humane. But the other thing is, Christia Freeland was the one last August whose tweets about human rights in Saudi Arabia set off that whole, you know, fire about, uh, you know, Canada-Saudi Arabia relations. So politicians, I thought she was an, an unusual choice too. If politicians want to do the right thing, sometimes that means staying out of the picture and just doing the right thing because every time you put your face in the picture, it looks opportunistic and like you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. And if they were doing it for the right reason, that should have been enough. You don't need to then be in the portrait. What's interesting is the crown prince in, in Saudi Arabia Hasn't said a word yet because he's too tied up with the U.S. (laughs) You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier this week, I had uh, Sylvain Charlebois, who works uh, at Dalhousie University on. He is a food expert, and he was talking about how Canada, Health Canada, which for, I think he said since 1942, since midway through (laughs) the Second World War, has had this food guide with four main food groups, your grains, your milk and alternatives, your meat and alternatives and your fruit and vegetables now says, hmm, that's not really covering it. We have a 28 food food guide, which I joked with him will be terribly easy to remember like this last one. You know that the kids are going to be able to remember the 28 foods they're supposed to mix and match and everything else. Well, they do have categories, but they have more categories and different categories. It's just so much, like everything else, we're making it more complicated. But my question is, do you believe that by having a new food guide and a more in-depth food guide and a more, I don't know, whatever the word, that we're going to eat better? Or is is anybody going to actually pay, is anyone going to eat better because of the, they may do it because they want to be better health. They may look at the ingredients, but because of this food guide, is anybody going to eat better? Well, you've got to take into consideration that also there was a world food guide that came out, talked about saving the environment. And I think that combined with the Canada Food Guide will make a difference for a lot of people. Like whole wheat bread, you know, some people have said, oh, I already switched over to whole wheat. And, and you just said, well, really make a difference. Will people eat differently? I think people are already eating differently. I think a lot of young people have taken it to heart in terms of saying, no, you know what? I just think I'll have tomato and lettuce or something on whole wheat that they've ch- started to change their diet. And I think older people... <laughs> looking and going, maybe I should, you know, less meat over here because we've all talked about the meat situation. But then the World Report talked about, do you know how much of the environment is affected by one, you know, cow, cow uh, you know, in terms of what it's taking up in water, in feed, in land use? and uh, You can put them in my of, freezer if you want. I'll well, eat them. Well, a production of methane gas, right? Greenhouse gases are and, produced in part by cattle. And you're 100% right that people are making these changes. I, I absolutely believe that. I think people are changing their eating habits. But do you think that the food guide is going to change people's? I, I look at this and I think this is just an exercise. Uh, it's a wasted bit of time because people are either eating healthier now or they're not eating healthier now. But me telling you, oh, wait, you know what? 
Please restudy. There's now 28 foods we'd like you to consider. I don't think that's going to change one mind. I think it will. I think that it's been a long time coming, you know, in terms of since the last time it was updated. Our population, the demographics of our country have changed in that amount of time completely. And so, you know, we used to refer to them as uh, beans. They're called pulses now. They're called what? Pulses. 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 I thought that's what you what when you touch that's your wrist. That's what we have too, and that's okay. you eat pulses to keep your pulse going. Oh. <laughs> I thought it's you the ate the, the eat the beans just to keep the air warm. That's that's well, that's part of it too. Mm. Uh, but also all these other things that I mean, I find it quite fascinating. I think for certainly people my age, way back, you go, oh my gosh, you're a vegetarian. I couldn't imagine meeting, you know, putting together a meal that didn't have meat on the plate. Or now, you know, I try to put together. Uh, recipes that are vegetarian, but nobody knows they're vegetarian, you know, like, and they're delicious. And I think that was another thing about the foods that used to be, you know, talked about in terms of being a vegetarian. Well, it's like eating cardboard. How many times did you hear that when it came to plant-based diets, which is what they're promoting now, so. When my mom would put tofu into the food instead of meat, she never got away with it without being caught. (laughs) That was disgusting. I still cannot eat tofu. It's on that list. Tofu, zucchini, eggplant. That's right. They're really, I'm able to dance around almost everything else. Those are the three hot button. But you're right. We now have a very different makeup of our society. Right. Whether it's, you know, we now, uh, back in 1942, I don't know how many, I bet you there was not an Indian restaurant in Canada in 1942. Yeah. There may have been Chinese restaurants, but certainly not real Chinese restaurants. Half mile from from here, I think, or half kilometer, sorry. I should go metric. Um, we have a Persian restaurant. Would have never had that. We never And the Chinese that. restaurants we would have had, maybe if you had that in 1942, would have been... The, the, the phony baloney Chinese stuff, the the stereotype, but not real Chinese food. That is correct. You can now get any nationality food. But I go back to my point. I don't believe, and we've got to go to a break. I don't, I don't believe, I think that ever. I think many, many people are changing their eating habits, as you say. I, I really do believe that. I think you're absolutely right. But I don't think anybody of any nationality is going to look at the Canadian New Food Guide and say, you know what? Those legumes I was eating weren't the right legumes. <laughs> you were saying that it's not just the 28 food types, which I think is very confusing. Maybe people in time will learn it. But you're saying they're also going deeper and saying, here's how you should eat your food. Well, exactly. I mean, they're saying some obvious things, but maybe not obvious to everyone, but less processed foods. Watch the sugar. Read the labels. Like it's taking me almost double the time in a grocery store now to do my shopping because I'm going, okay, uh, what's the uh, trans fat, saturated fats over here? And then I'm looking at the other package and I'm starting to make those decisions uh, on a more regular basis, put it that way, about eating together. Now, there's one that, Mm. you know, for some cultures is really important. But in a busy lifestyle that we all have... Eating together has sort of sometimes gone out the window. Absolutely, you it know. Has. And if it's even once a week, that's that's pretty good. Um, drink water. Drink a lot of water. He said, Sylvain, when he was on here, he said water is going to be one of the things on there. Again, let me be a cynic or a skeptic or whatever else, because I look at you and I say, you though are a high intelligence, high educated, high functioning, high involved person who would do this, who would take the time at the store to look at the ingredients. I'm, I, I don't want to insult everybody, 
But I think that that is unusual still. I don't think most people do that. And I don't expect that having a new food guide is going to suddenly cause people. If you do it, you do it. If you don't do it, you don't do it. I'm not convinced this is going to suddenly convince everyone they have to do it. Well, you're never going to convince everyone. I don't think it's going to convince more people. Oh, I don't know. I just think that there's a a group of young people that are coming up that are more aware, A, of what they're eating, and B, of the environment. And if those two things can be brought together to improve, on one hand, you know, their life, and on the other hand, the environment that we should all be interested in, then good on them. It was about time to update it. Do you remember the, that big poster in your classroom had the big rainbow and yes. the four groups? As soon as they said the food guide, that came to mind. Uh, but that's what we've that. known for our whole lives. Yeah. And, and so maybe, honestly, maybe maybe you're the fast adjuster. I'm the slower adjuster. I don't see myself ever... Uh, I, first of all, I never really paid much attention to the food guide. I never, when I sat down to a meal, said, oh, you know what I'm missing on Our this food plate? groups are... My yeah. dairy. I, you know, I never, I don't drink a lot of dairy now. I've gone to almond milk. Ah, there you mm-hmm. go. I've branched out. Maybe that's one of the new 28. I don't know. But they also talk about the fact that there are certain groups who uh, probably won't follow this to the great, you know, great extent, stay away from beef. You know, chicken, fish is okay, but, you know, one hamburger a week. When you talk about Indigenous people living in the far north, they have a land-based diet. Mm-hmm. So it's not as easy to go get. in the garden, because, you know, they may not have that, uh, in order to get fresh produce, et cetera. And any fresh foods that they can get that are important to those communities, if they can make it to those communities, um, is is over-processed food. That's another thing. I mean, I loved her dearly, but mom, you know, TV dinners, you know, throwing in the basket and, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, I think for the most part, people understand that cooking your food is really important. And a lot of cultures, you know, have stayed away from meat because they didn't have meat to begin or the, with. Or they have other things that most it's, Canadian-born people, right. and I don't mean Canadian, there are a lot of foods that... It, other groups, other people who have come here as a first-generation Canadian would eat that we'd go, oh. Do you remember lentils? They found out a lot of Canadians don't even eat lentils. Yet they're saying it probably should be part of your daily allowance. I'm going, One of wow. the foods that I tried this year, I uh, had never expected to try this, and it was overseas where I tried it, but was bugs, crickets. Oh, Wow. Roasted cricket. Now, that is something that apparently you can get here now. You never, I don't think you ever used to before, but that's now something that in certain places you can now get that here. And there was a report today that said that industry is growing rapidly. Of course it is. Because you look at, you know, the abundance of crickets and the protein that is contained in those crickets. And it makes absolute sense. So think of the future that you are going to go to the store and buy your pound of cannabis for the weekend and you're going to have the munchies and buy a pound of crickets. I was going to say, I forget what I was going to eat. And buy a pound of crickets to munch on (laughs) and some almond milk on the side. But it'd be healthier in Oreos, I guess. Healthier. I'm not sure. You know, the the crickets, they weren't bad. What did they remind you of? They were, they were spiced well. They were roasted in spices and stuff and salt and pepper. Like sunflower seeds? Uh, no, they were, they just tasted like the spices more than anything. And it was once I had eaten one and had got my head around the fact that, oh, that wasn't bad. Right. I could have eaten a, a bag of them. I w- it would have been fine. It was the first one that it just took you... To, to cook me to convince myself. But after that, you know, we're, that may be the future. That'll be number 29 on our food, our new food guide, crickets. There you go. And then we'll all be eating crickets. <laughs> Some of us will. 
You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Sue Prestige is in studio. She is a longtime broadcaster. She is a longtime instructor. She has worked many places and uh, and been great at all of them. And we are lobbying, we're beginning our campaign this evening to get her into some Hall of Fame because I was <laughs> sure she had been in one, but not so much. So that is, that is our new plan here that... Um, but one of the last places, well, the last place that you worked, interestingly enough, was as an instructor at Mohawk College. That is correct. Of course, colleges and universities in the news wow. this week with the with the Ford government's decision about cutting back student fees by 10%, which will then come out of the university or college's budget. They have to figure out how to do this. This has led, Sue, to a number of people, a lot of people, actually, if I was reading on Twitter yesterday and on social media, a lot of people arguing that post-secondary education, college or university should be free, should be a right. You should be able, no matter who you are, to go and get your post-secondary education for free. Do you agree that post-secondary education should be free? I am caught between a rock and a hard place on this because I understand it from both perspectives. Um, The argument for free university or college I think every country really needs an educated population. Like, they have to understand the social, economic, because when you don't have that type of population, I'm not pointing fingers, but yes, I am pointing fingers to the U.S., in some areas of the U.S., where education... Michael Moore, I remember him saying this prior to the presidential election. He said, Trump is going to win. And he was being interviewed, and then he said, what? There's no possible way. He said, you know why he's going to win? He's going to win because we've allowed the education system in this country to fall apart. And so they're believing anything, he says, without any critical thinking, et cetera, et cetera. So from that perspective, I think we need more critical thinkers. And I think in a lot of cases, that's what colleges and universities do. And just because you can't afford the tuition doesn't mean that you shouldn't be given the opportunity to learn critical thinking, just start questioning your politicians, et cetera. It's going to make for a much healthier country. On the flip side of that, you know, I think we'll end up with waiting lists. I think we'll have uh, colleges and universities that will have to cut courses definitely because they won't be able to fund them. Um, I think it'll probably be short-lived because I think, you know, there'll be a certain part of the population will say, this is just getting too expensive, blah, 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 blah. But you take in consideration the number of students who are working while they're going to school just trying to pay off any kind of school debt. I don't know about you, but if I had a really good job in the summer when I was a teenager or heading towards my 20s, but getting into college, I could probably save enough money in that summer to pay for my tuition for the year. That doesn't happen anymore. And you have students who are, instead of studying, are working these split shifts or, uh, you know, just trying to get by. Because it's not just the tuition. It's also uh, living away from home. It's computers. It's paying extra fees, et cetera. So I think it's going to be really, really difficult. But I still think going free is the best way to do it. Maybe it's getting those who can afford it to pay a nominal fee and allow others who simply can't afford it to, you know, attend university or college for free. It's, Undergrad. Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting one. I, I lean towards that I'm not supporting a completely free education, and for a couple of reasons, and it's none of them are because I'm just a cold-hearted jerk, although some may, some may <laughs> say that. 
Uh, the, for the first thing is, I think that with anything, Sue, with anything, if you have to pay something for it, it has more value to you. It means something more if you have to contribute something to it. If I, if I just am walking down the street and I'm handed a giant TV and I drop it and I can go back and get another TV, who cares? It doesn't mean anything. If I have to save my money and pay for that TV, it's something that matters to me. I'm going to protect it. It's like a lot of other things. So not that I want people to be bankrupted by it or crushed by it, but I think there is an absolute need for some investment into that education by by the person, by the student who's doing that. And I think I, it creates a value. That argument. I think I can buy that argument. I also think that if it were to be free, I think that every student who applied for a course would have to go through some, court of, some kind of testing to see if they're even suited for that course. Well, that's the next thing. And we have heard many times in recent years that everybody should go to university or college. I couldn't disagree with that more. Somehow we have lost sight of the fact that there is value and honor in being an electrician or a plumber or a manual laborer or a carpenter or pick your hands-on thing. You don't all have to be doctors, lawyers, philosophy students, English majors. There are people who are not cut out for post-secondary education. But and treats no people a lot with the colleges, I must say. You know, tra- they, yes. they are, you know, along with... Uh, this is know, more university. with the trades. I get that. Yeah. Uh, but also, you look at the, the trades people and you go, you can make a very good living. You can. There is no now. shame no. in not going to university, provided you're not going to university. It doesn't just mean sitting at home and collecting welfare forever of choice. If you don't go to university because you don't have the... You're not cut out for it. That's not where you are in your head. You have other interests. There's no shame in doing those other things. And yet somehow as a society, if you, if your kid, no, not your kids, but I mean you, the bigger you, if someone says, Sue, what are your kids up to? And you go, where are they at university? Well, they didn't go to university. There's like a shame involved with that. And it's totally misplaced to me. It's totally misplaced to me. And so the, this is the second part of it is that if we make post-secondary education completely free, it seems to me the next step in that that follows that we're going to have to do is, well, if it's free, everybody should then have access to it, right? So it doesn't matter if you're capable of doing it, if it's because if, if we're supposed to be providing this to everybody, then you should be able to go even if your marks aren't there, even if your head's not there. That it falls into the same thing as an elementary or a high school. Equality. Because a lot of people yes. have said that. You know, we don't make them pay for elementary. We don't make them pay for high school. Why should we make them pay for university my arg- or university or college? My argument is in high school, they really they weren't teaching me to be a broadcaster. No. Nope. Right. I knew that post-secondary was where you learned, you had an education in something that you wanted to do. But I really feel strongly about the testing before somebody gets into a program. Because you can't have half the class sitting there saying, you know, oh, this is a course for me. And they're failing terribly. And they're bringing down the quality of the overall, you know, class. So I agree with you. There's got to be some way of measuring whether or not... Uh, what value does this college or education or college or university education mean to them? I mean, the countries that do have free education, we've got Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Iceland. Like, 
they've done some, you know, pretty interesting things culturally and socially when it comes to, you know, a well-educated population. They've also got much higher standards in high school leading into university. Thank you. I was just going to bring that up. And so you don't have, pardon the comment, but you don't have people who have screwed around in high school and have never paid attention. And the, the issue with free education, ultimately, why would education be free? The the underlying base reason for this is we want everyone to have an equal opportunity. It's about equality. Whether you're rich or poor, everyone has an equal opportunity. Well, if we're going to give you the opportunity to go to university as an equality case based on your family's wealth or lack of it, and we're not going to hold you out because you're poor, the same argument is going to naturally flow that says we're not going to hold you out because you're not as smart. You weren't born with the same intellectual gifts, which means I believe that if you suddenly say it's free for everyone, you also have to throw open the doors and say it's available to everyone. And that takes me to your point, which is it shouldn't be. University is not for everyone. That's not an insult to the people who don't go. No, but do we have a responsibility as a society or as a society or a college or a university to provide courses where service workers and look at the industry of service workers in this country has expanded exponentially. Like, you know, I think there's an interesting, I'm reading the book, uh, Trump's book on, uh, well, it's not, Woodward's book on Trump called Fear. And part of it is that one of them has to explain to Trump that, you know, don't, don't, uh, you know, uh, tell the people in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, that we're going to open coal mines again or something. Look at look at Trump Tower. What was there when you first moved in? And he starts naming off all these retail stores. Now what's there? And he goes, well, there's a Starbucks and there's this and there's that. All service industries. And so I always wondered, why don't we have a certificate program that addresses, make them the best service workers they possibly can be? Because a lot of those individuals... Given the opportunity, you know, it's you're not doing a three or four year commitment, but a one year certificate, they move up the ladder in the service industry in which they are a part of. Why not? Because that would be for themselves would be build their esteem, but also might be an answer to those who don't want to attend college university. There's also one other point, which we haven't even touched upon yet, which is the the bigger issue, I think, than anything. And that is when... The previous premier was saying that there would be free education. Uh, you worked at Mohawk, mm-hmm. and this is not an insult against you, but best of my knowledge, you didn't do that as a volunteer. You that were paid. The, and, is... and so it's not free. We can say it's free, but someone has to pay. And so that just means higher and higher taxes. And look, I, I, I can sit here all day and have debates and listen to people argue about what Doug Ford should or should not cut. Regard somewhere, and, and people can make compelling arguments that the cuts that he has made are wrong or these ones are right, whatever. I don't think anyone is arguing that our province is not in great problem because we've decided that everything seemingly should be free for everyone. So we have to make some hard decisions. I, today is not the day, I'm not going to do it right now, to argue whether this is the right decision or not. We can have that debate later. But somewhere, nothing is free. Ultimately, nothing is free. Even, you know, even if you say that you don't have to pay tuition, it's all those extra things. Because when I heard that announcement, I said, huh, interesting. Are the students going to be able to, depending on the program they're in, buy that expensive computer? 
with the programs loaded on it, et cetera. Is, is that part of the deal too? Because what if they live out of town and they can't afford residence? Do we pay then that you get to stay for free and eat and live for free? Well, I think in that case, you'd find a lot of people staying within the margins of their... That used to be the case, you know, with community colleges. You couldn't advertise outside a certain area that belonged to you. Now, everybody's, you know, Humber's advertising, Niagara College is advertising, just, you know, right around the corner. Because they have different programs from other places. Well, yeah, there could be an overload of those programs, which we could see uh, cut as a result of this announcement. I just... uh, I'm not a believer in the idea that it's for free. I think I, I just I do believe there is value in paying for something. Should it be something graded? Should it be based on income? Perhaps that I, I'm I'm open to that. That richer people pay more than poorer people based on your tax returns. I'd be okay with that. But maybe we also have to look at the benefits of something like that as well. You know, as I pointed out, if you've got a well-educated population. Things can, uh, you know, come out of that in terms of uh, research, innovation, et cetera, things that we haven't even considered before, and more people coming up with better ideas to make our society better. So, I don't you know, think anyone... either pay me now or pay me later, because if you're going to have people not going to university or college or getting a better education, better that's the best way to mm-hmm. put it, then you might be paying in in social services somewhere down the line. Yeah, and I don't think there's too many people, there are probably some, but I don't think there's too many people arguing that we want to have less educated people. I don't I don't think that's a, an argument that we're making. I think it's a... No, but it's just saying, you know, we're taking that part of the population that right now uh, is not going to college, is not going to university and saying, even if we could move those people up into the category of critical thinkers, how much better our society would be. It's, it's, look, it's, it's a very fair point. Uh, and again, I, I don't think there's too many people arguing that we want to have a dumber population. I don't think that we're saying that. We only have a minute or two left. I wasn't even going to go here, but it, it seems to lead. Since th- there have been cuts now to education, there's been cuts to... Uh, Got rid of Lynn, all the, the health network. Th- there's, there's a bunch of different things. And to the best of my knowledge, and someone will correct me and tell me where I've gone wrong on this one, that's fine. I, I would... In, I would welcome hearing where I'm wrong. Every cut that has been made has been followed by someone calling an attack on something or other. So how, if you're a government, whether it's Doug Ford, whether it's the next government that comes in, whatever, how do you make any cuts now as a government if every single thing that you would try to say, we can't afford this anymore, is seen as an attack on somebody? How do you, how do you how do you start pulling back the finances of the province? I understand that you have to pull back the finances of the province. I think the problem with this particular government is that when he went after Toronto and the council, he got a reputation That's another throughout one, yep. the province. And so everybody is suspect of what this government is doing. Why are they doing it? I think is a big question. You know, the spill 66 that you know speaks to the uh, green belt mm-hmm. in water, etc. That, you know, those that has to be looked at very, especially when he said we're going to we're open for business. And so those who appreciate the green belt and say, you know, is this his way of getting around it to allow the green belt to disappear piece by piece by piece? So I think it's the reputation that he's already sown. So to well, speak. he came in saying he was going to be cutting. I mean, yeah. he did. He came in saying he There's was going to be cutting. And yeah, absolutely. If you have to cut to, you know, uh, balance the budget once again, I get it. But I think his, um, his reputation precedes him. I, I don't doubt, I, I don't argue the reputation uh, bit. I, I do find it 
regardless of your political stripe. If the liberals were in now, now I don't know if they would want to be cutting anything or the NDP. But if you did say, look, we, we have to get the money down. We have to get the budget. I, 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 I don't think you know. would have people arguing all the time. It doesn't Bob matter Ray. who's in power. Look, when Bob Ray was in power, and there's oh, yeah. never been a there's never been a government that was more left in Ontario. They had Ray days. They had other things they had to cut, and everything was an attack on somebody. You cannot, no matter what government you are, cut anything now without it being an attack on some marginal or some disadvantaged or whatever group. And so you can't win, no matter who, what government you I are. I think you could, uh, you know, say there's going to be more consultation, which is, ne- is not the strong suit of this government. The only time I've seen them do that is when they're talking about the review of regional government. And I think he appointed two individuals who have pretty solid background. But, uh, you know, there was very much the interviews that I heard with that gentleman whose name I can't remember. Ceiling from yes. Waterloo, yeah. And, you know, who said, we're not saying that we're going to, we're just reviewing it and we're in consultation. And even Patrick Brown, which was shocked me as the mayor of Brampton, when interviewed said, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt right now. You know, I get it. Now, once again, you've got Mississauga saying, get us out of Peel. We got to get out of Peel. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens. But very much, it was the first time I really heard some sort of comment on the fact that uh, we have to have, you know, some kind of discussion before these cuts are made. Before Hamilton takes over Burlington. In yeah, a, in a, in a, all the way in down coup. to yeah. Niagara Falls. <laughs> the big Hamilton, much more tax dollars. Huh? <laughs> People around here may not complain, somewhere else they may. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Now, Sue, we were just talking about money and about people paying for stuff. And I I didn't know I was going to go down this road, but you know what? It seems like it flows in right now. Down south of the border, they have a government shutdown on right now. Yes. And the only people who are working are essential workers. So TSA agents at the airport and things like that. But they have, and there's something like 400,000 of them that are actually at work. But the only people who are actually at their jobs are essential workers. And best I can check, best I can tell... The country is still standing. Makes me wonder, why do we need those who aren't essential working for our government, period? I know that's the Americans, but it would be the same thing here. Why don't we whittle down our government to who is essential and leave it at that and our taxes would go down and our oversight from government would go down? Seems to me government should be essential. We have nobody to send pizzas to. (laughs) <laughs> you heard about the air traffic controllers, yes. right? I was thinking maybe if we cross the border for, you know, Fort Erie or something, I'll take a pizza along and say, hey, you boys need this. But air traffic controllers are essential. We know they that. Are, there are absolutely. there are essential There are essential people. And clearly, we're seeing here, there are a lot of people who work for the government that we don't really need them. Well, we may not need them so much, but, you know. The I'm country the, seemingly doesn't need them. The well, country's moving along. Well, Washington, D.C. is pretty well closed down. You're not getting into any of those institutions there. Forget those. Um, we don't. I haven't heard a report on terms of uh, government social workers, if you know what I mean. I mean, what's happening with that? What's happening with, um, you know, anybody that works for the federal government but is also involved in some kind of social work situation with the police or, uh, you know, the courts, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, we're hearing about the obvious ones, but, um, yeah, I think there are, this can't go on much longer. I mean, really, I think there will be a big crack in the system, and maybe you're saying, well, we haven't seen down the States, so what about here? I think that, you know, f- for the most part, 
I don't want to go on a limb here, but I will anyway. Um, that uh, the governments have trimmed a lot, and they did it under a lot of pressure, and a lot of pressure because of the, you know, brought by the taxpayer, by, you know, other people. But, uh, yeah, it's a very, very tricky situation. But I just think, well, we haven't seen anything, you know, really, does it matter? Because look at the states, they're still functioning. Well, they may not be functioning the way that they should for a lot of people. But we just look at the obvious choices like the air traffic controllers, those working the border, et cetera. And people volunteering to work because they just know that they have to. I still believe that we are heavily overgoverned. Okay, prove I your do. point. No, no, and, and I would love to see, and I've argued this before, that, for example, the city of Hamilton, I think we have so many city of Hamilton employees. I want none of them to be fired. I want none of them to be fired. But I think in the province of Ontario, the, gov- the country of Canada, the city of Hamilton, we could put a hiring freeze on and allow attrition to happen for a few years and lose some people by retirement or moving to other jobs, and we wouldn't really notice the difference. I'd ha- you'd not have cu- to prove it to Not me. cutting in half. Yeah. I mean, uh, but you know what? If we have, I think we have 7,500 municipal employees in Hamilton, mm-hmm. something like that. If we lost a thousand by attrition, and your garbage isn't getting picked up, no, it'll, no you know what? It it would. It it might be once a week. It might be a little later in the well, day. Well, actually, garbage is private, isn't it? It is. There yeah. there are other things. I, I I look around and I see in the private sector that everybody has had to tighten up and do a little more because that's just the way of the world. And I think that if that was what happened in the public sector, it would be done. You would have to. Okay. I get it. I know what you're talking about, but sometimes I get upset with the individuals, not you. <laughs> well, you can Indi- be upset with me no, if you no, want. No, 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 but individuals who sometimes say, oh, private business, you know, they can do whatever they want. You know, they're working on a profit loss basis. But really, oh, those governments are just, you know, packed with people that, you know, there's, they could do, one person could do the job of three people, et cetera. And I just go, well, I'm not so sure of that. Having worked in a government situation, because the college is mm-hmm. government run, um, I, you know, I saw some very, very hard workers in terms of what they were doing. And they were, you know, they're, you know, when somebody retired, sometimes that position wasn't, you know, uh, play, replaced, uh, that somebody else took on the responsibility. So I think without the numbers in front of me to say, okay, where were we 10 years ago with government? Is 7,500 a reduction from 10,000? You know, a few years ago, I don't know those numbers, so it's hard for me to argue it. But, um, yeah, sure, any business, any government could could afford to work with less people, but then you take into consideration the stress level of those who are left behind, and that is uh, And we know painful. what happens to the postal workers when they get stressed. No, I'm not. That's a, that's a stereotype. I'm not. We all know the stories, <laughs> the jokes, but they're not really jokes, but, you know, no, 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 I'm not saying that. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a story that moved on the Associated Press today, which stunned me. Um, it's one. It's talking about one university in the states, but it's a really interesting story. It's about University of Connecticut, UConn. Uh, many people around here will be familiar with that school because Kia Nurse from Hamilton played basketball for them for four years. And what's interesting about this school is the, the story is the athletics department at UConn ran a $40 million deficit last year. In the middle of this story, it points out that the women's basketball team, which really, they have been the best basketball team in the States for a decade and a half, almost two decades now. They are the crown jewel of women's basketball, maybe women's sports, period. 
they brought in revenues last year of $2.4 million. So ticket sales mainly. That's what the women's basketball team brought in. The best women's basketball team in the country. The men's team, which was absolutely mediocre, brought in ticket revenues of $3.1 million. So 700000 more for a mediocre to not even that much men's team. So that, they said ticket, that was definitely brought in just by the sale of tickets. T- ticket sales. Yeah, ticket sales for the men's basketball games from AP totaled $3.1 million, while ticket sales for the women's games brought in $2.4 million. You've worked in women's TSN when that was on the air. You've mm-hmm. worked in other... What I find so hard to believe is there's so much effort these days being put on promoting women's sports, airing women's sports. The women's the Canadian Women's Hockey League All Star Game is on this weekend. Sarah Nurse from Hamilton is playing in it. I think Laura Fortino is in it. Um, there are leagues, there are whatever, and it still seems to be a struggle. Okay, so we could probably look at the ticket sales, and I'm just this off the top of my head. Um, Still, men's sports is something that's tied very much to business. If you have a lot of male graduates from uh, UConn, yeah, that are now involved in business, they're buying group tickets, they're going, you know, taking customers to the games, et cetera. Um, Just by the sheer number of, of men executives that are still out there, and I know women are making great strides in terms of uh, taking over, you know, executive positions in companies, but I don't... I just don't think the first thing that comes to mind is, let's get the girls together and go out to a game. Maybe they should. You know, maybe that should be part of their routine I as think well. you're right. But it's a, it's a also th- alumni situation because the male alumni situation has been groomed. I don't get how UConn lost that amount of money because, you know, you look at the overall university program down in the States that what they're paying their coaches – alone is astronomical. I can't even remember what team it was, but he was making over 200000 300000 a year. Now, that was a football coach. But still, how does UConn lose that amount of money? Well, you start to look at some of the... Just before I do that, I think you're absolutely right about Okay, I don't everything. want to get off topic. No, no, no. Yeah, I, we'll UConn. go to that in a second. I think you're, you're absolutely right about everything. The only reason that this one stuns me because I think you're correct about the the male alumni and everything else, but if any women's program was ever going to be the one that would be the exception to the rule that could draw the people, it would be UConn's women's team. You would You would think. Mm-hmm. I, I, pick any other university. You're not going to have this same thing. They won something like 159 straight regular season games, and they were dominant, and they have all the best players. And but see, I don't know what the contract is, the TV contract for the male This was This was only game. ticket sales. I get it, but still the attraction, you, you have to be um, exposed to the sport. On You have to get to know the players. Like if... Mm-hmm. If you go to a Ticat game or you watch it on TV, you get to see the names, you, you know, the players, you know, Simone Lawrence becomes part of your repertoire, yep, yep. et cetera. And, and women's sports just hasn't had that kind of television exposure. And so if you don't know them, why would you go to the I game? think this, again, and not to be disagreeable, to I think it's the exception. We were on a cruise one time about a year and a half or two years ago, bobbing around in the Caribbean. And we walked by this guy who was sitting watching, he was streaming a game on his computer and I was waiting in line for a coffee or something. And I just got chatting. I said, oh, who are you watching? And he goes, well, UConn. And I said, yeah. oh, I know Kia Nurse. And that was the biggest thing in the world to him that I knew right. Kia Nurse. Was he so from? He was from there, but right. th- but it was available online. It was available on TV. They're, they are a big, big deal down there. The answer to down your other there. question. Yeah. Well, but that's who would 
presumably buy the tickets. The other point you're making is uh, men's operating expenses. So they brought in, men brought in, uh, what did I say? Where was the number before? 3.1 million in ticket ticket sales. sales. Their operating expenses were 11.1 million. Women's basketball brought in 2.4. Their operating expenses were 7.8 million. Now, I don't know why the difference. The only thing I can wonder is if their schedule requires more travel or for the March Madness or whatever else, if that if you have to pay to fly across the country a bunch exactly, of times or whatever yeah, else. That's the only thing I can think of. Because, because UConn women are always the powerhouse. They usually play closer to home. They get that benefit in March Madness. That's the advantage of your rankings. But I also wonder, and I don't know if this is anything... Do you think that Title IX for, and Title IX is, for those who don't know, it requires by law that every dollar that is spent on men's sports is also spent spent on women's sports. sports. While that is um, philosophically a good thing, do you think it costs more then? Because at some point, if a woman, if you're paying for a men's football team that may cost millions and a men's basketball team, you have to now spend this amount of money on women's sports. On women's sports. And if they're not bringing in the revenues, could that lead to losses? Which means you have two choices. You either take the losses or you cut back on some of the men's programs. I right. mean, it's, not, it's your own fault if you don't, if yeah. you're losing because money. Because not every university has a men's team in every sport that is like, you know. But a, football is a crushing so, cost for most absolutely. of them. Absolutely. And you know what? I was just thinking back. I think this starts right in high school. And I'm not going to mention the high school my daughters went to, but... I remember she came home and they had won uh, OFSA gold medal in OFSA women's soccer. Big deal because it wasn't a big school. Um, But the boys were going to GHAC. I think it was that football team was going to GHAC. And the school held a rally and everything else. And she was looking at it going, well, wait a minute. We never got that kind of treatment. And we, I had another one who went to Queens. Same sort of thing. They were on the field practicing. They're going to the Nationals. And as they're going back to the dressing room, they're smelling, what is that aroma? Well, the uh, Football Alumni Association had set up a huge buffet for the men who were going on. And it was just in case that, you know, this is so different for the women. So it kind of starts there. Um, you know, I th- it, it's a cultural thing that I don't think is going to change it's going to change, but it's going to take a very long time for it to change. That's all. We have one minute or so left. Yes. Uh, My question, and and I've been told before that by by suggesting this, it's sexist. I don't believe that. But I've said, look, if you want this to change, perhaps more women should be going to support some of these women's teams that would then lead their boyfriends, husbands, sons, whatever, to also tag along. It's not that we want to make it just women watch women's sports, but if it's important, start going and others will then follow. I was told, no, why should women have to do that? And it's like, well, it's not why should they have to, if you believe in it. Absolutely. But you do have more and more parents because now the opportunity is for girls to play hockey, girls to play soccer. Which should lead to more viewers, right? Right. And you have, well, yeah. But if you can get those games broadcast all the time and you don't. I mean, you only see, you know, the Women's Hockey League. Uh, you'll probably see the semifinals and the finals. That's what we used to broadcast mm-hmm. on WTSN. Um, but, you know, that's they have a lot of games in the regular season. But, you know, so, some of the pro teams are starting to pick it up and saying, okay, you know what, maybe we've got to start teaming with the women. 
Um, I think they're doing it for their own benefit as well. I mean, I don't think it's just, uh, you know, we're doing this because we feel sorry for you. I think it benefits everyone. Well, the other thing for for the hockey, leaving UConn aside for the hockey, there are two women's pro leagues right now Mm -hmm. that are in competition with each other. And the NHL has said, look, figure it out get together, and then maybe we'll jump on board and support you. It seems so self-defeating that these two organizations can't figure it out, knowing that the NHL, with its bushelfuls of money and TV deals and arenas, could be a partner. partner. Stop squabbling with each other. Figure this thing out. Get together, and you may have an opportunity to really grow the game. It seems so petty. Mm Mm-hmm that you would put aside the betterment of your entire sport to see who's going to be the... I think that one will work itself out. I, I hope so. Yeah, I, I hope just so. don't think it's going to be long-lasting. Well, the WNBA, a lot of people said, wouldn't be long-lasting, and it's still going. It's had its ups and downs, and it's had its troubles in certain places, but it's it's going. Well, people forgot the NBA. It took a long time to get that one established. Well, so. thank goodness for Dr. J and Michael... There you Magic go. Johnson and Larry Bird, quite honestly. Yeah. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.